Merry Christmas. Are you excited? I have a feeling this is going to be the perfect Christmas. How do I know? The same way all you guys know. The more stressed out my wife is, the more perfect Christmas is going to be. It's like a barometer. What? Too soon? Come on. You can't handle the truth. Sometimes when we touch, the honesty is too much. All right. Hashtag old songs. All right. Now, we all know what it's like trying to make the perfect Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? Most of the time, trying to make perfect Christmas leaves us feeling a lot more like Clark Griswold than George Bailey, right? The setting up, the scheduling, the buying, the baking, the budgeting, the wrapping, the productions, the rehearsals. When did celebrating Christmas start to feel less like magic and more like air traffic control? It's crazy. And so today, we are going to push the pause button on crazy and look at the truth about what the perfect Christmas looks like. And no, the Hallmark Channel does not have the corner on the perfect Christmas market. No, but we know who does. So stand if you can with me for the reading from today's scripture. It's in Galatians chapter 4. But when the right time came, God sent his son born of a woman, subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. Let's pray. Father, there's no one like you. Your love has no end. Your faithfulness is at work in our generation and beyond. Your grace is more than enough. You're perfect in all of your ways. We praise you. We worship you. The glory belongs to you now and forever. And everyone said, you may be seated. Look, planning anything special like Christmas requires a sense of timing. Know what I mean? I mean, if you're going to have the perfect Christmas, the timing has to be perfect. Presents cannot be wrapped on December the 26th, okay? You can't make Christmas dinner in June. People will look at you funny if you go around singing Christmas carols in April, okay? And so whether you're making dinner or you're playing in a band or you're fighting a war, timing is everything. And, and it reminds me of that scene in, in that movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, right? In, in that movie where Gandalf says, a wizard is never late, nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. Thank you for the nerds who laughed at that. Okay, I, I appreciate. I pre- I, thank you. I know. And when the Apostle Paul was saying that God sent Jesus at just the right time, he was not being poetic, he was not being sentimental, and he wasn't trying to be funny. When Jesus was born, it was perfect timing. Not because the world was perfect. Like, hey, hey, God, we got all of society's issues worked out. We got all the diseases cured. There's no more wars. There's no more hunger. There's no more poverty. All we need is your Messiah to show up and run it. No, not remotely. And not even for all the academic reasons, you know, like the Roman Empire unifying the world or, or the common Greek language. All those are true. They are not what Paul is talking about. No, Paul was literally saying that Jesus came at the specific moment that he was supposed to. And we can know this because of a very important part of the Christmas story. It begins with an announcement from the angel Gabriel. So let's look at that. Daniel chapter 9, this is Gabriel speaking. 
Now listen and understand. Seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler, the anointed one, comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with streets and strong defenses despite the perilous times. After this period of 62 sevens, sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. The end will come with a flood and war and its miseries are decreed from that time to the very end. Hey, that's not the Christmas announcement I was expecting this morning. What are we doing here in Daniel? Okay, Gabriel is not speaking to a young virgin girl named Mary here. No, this conversation is happening more than 500 years earlier than that. And it's not even taking place in Israel. Gabriel has come to the pagan empire of Babylon to speak to an exiled Hebrew named Daniel. Who's Daniel and what does he have to do with Christmas? Am I in the right church this morning? I'm so glad you asked. And yes, you are. And we don't have time for a deep analysis this morning. But just know that Daniel, from his youth, had a profound loyalty to and love for God. He was not swayed in a culture that was spiritually backslidden and rebellious. He was not swayed even when the worst case scenario played out, the destruction of his country, the destruction by the armies of Babylon. Daniel and his friends were taken along with the best and the brightest to be enslaved, made into eunuchs, to become the slaves of Babylon. You thought you were having a bad week or something. No, in the prime of life, Daniel lost his country. He lost his freedom. He lost his manhood. He lost his dreams of a marriage and a family. And he lost his name and has lost his culture. But what Daniel never lost was his faith in God. Daniel remained faithful to God. And he rose to the highest levels of leadership in Babylon because God was with him. And because of his unwavering character... And although he rose to power and influence, things did not get easier for Daniel. You know, in his older years, other empires come, they invade and overthrow Babylon. And even though they retain Daniel, political rivalries endanger his life. They try to make his relationship with God into a weakness. But Daniel remains faithful to his devotion to God and to prayer. And you know, we're discussing perfect timing this morning. I think it's interesting to note here, this revelation from Gabriel comes at one of the worst trials of his life. You've probably heard about it when he's thrown in the lion's den. You see, God doesn't need time. We do. You might say time exists to help demonstrate to us the greatness of our God. And Gabriel tells Daniel the date of Messiah's appearing, 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and that it will be troubled times. And Gabriel tells Daniel the Messiah will be killed, not for his own sins, but for the sins of others. And though his death would precede another destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and that war and desolation would continue, after which Messiah's kingdom will be established. So for that to occur... The Messiah must rise again. All of this, all of this timing, all of this mission of Messiah and Jesus' work revealed right here in this moment, this passage to Daniel. Because he was faithful 
in these circumstances. He served God and he respected his captors. God could trust him with messages and interpretations of dreams and visions of the future. And when you read Daniel's prayers, he's not praying, oh God, hurry up and destroy these pagan Babylonians. They're the problem. They've destroyed your city. They've destroyed your temple. They're the problems. Crush your enemies, God. No. You see, Daniel knew the real enemy was not the Babylonians. It was the sins and the rebellions of God's own people that resulted in their exile. You see, most of the time, what you think the problem is, that's not the problem. Am I right? The problem is always a spiritual problem. But you know, we, we get caught up, right, don't we? We get caught up in it and what we see. But Paul, the Apostle Paul, reminds us in Ephesians 6, we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. So, newsflash, if you are fighting somebody in your life that you can see, you are focused on the wrong battle. And all of your efforts and all of your schemes and all of your brilliant tactics, they're being wasted. Daniel's life was at stake. He breathed oxygen at the pleasure of one unstable dictator after another. But he took his fight to the right place. He sought the face of God to deal with the problem, the spiritual problem. And he winds up face to face with Gabriel. And we don't have time for the specifics, but another event in Daniel, all of the magi of Babylon were about to be executed. And Daniel saves their lives as a direct result of his relationship with God. Do you think maybe, just maybe, the magi have a sense of loyalty and respect for Daniel at this point? Oh, yes, they do. Hundreds of years later, Daniel was still respected enough that his writings were still studied by the Magi. And they wind up traveling hundreds of miles because they believed him. Every Christmas, we talk about wise men who travel to see Jesus, but the only reason they're even there, the only reason they show up is because of a slave boy from 400 years before that. So let me just say this. You might not like where you are right now. You might not like your circumstances. You may not like your job or your relationships or your environment. And you may be constantly thinking of, how do I get out of this? But what if, just what if, God's purpose for you is to show himself faithful through your life in the darkness so that generations after you will go and meet Jesus and would know Jesus. You have no idea how God wants to use your life in the middle of a problem to ripple through time and affect others. But it's not going to happen if you just sit there and stay obsessed with getting out of it and escaping the problem. So here we see this, this domino effect playing out. Daniel is in an impossible circumstance and he trusts God. And he pursues God. He receives a revelation and he preserves it, writes it down. Magi study it for hundreds of years. And when Gabriel came to him, what was Daniel studying? What was Daniel reading? He was reading the words of those who came before him. And God's, see, God's strategy doesn't just end there. He reveals the, this moment of, with the Magi to the prophet Isaiah. 
long before Daniel. The very scriptures that Daniel is studying reveal the restoration of Zion. While his country is destroyed, he's a slave. He's reading the words of Isaiah, prophesying kings will come from other nations, bringing gold and frankincense. Because the glory of God will appear. The light of God has risen. The shepherds saw the glory and the magi follow the light. And that's 300 years before Daniel even showed up. 700 years before Jesus is on the scene, Isaiah calls out the moment. And that nerd in me, you know, had a little revival when I saw that. Just how far back, how detailed God had planned and strategized to unfold this night. How God moved all the pieces and all the circumstances to his design. It's enough to praise God for, right? Why don't you go ahead and do it then? Praise God. But there's more. (laughs) Why? Why? Why all the maneuvering? Why all the planning? Why all the messages from the angels? For a very practical reason. You see, compared to most people, Mary and Joseph had nothing. And yet they've got to raise the son of God. And then they figure out, they, they find out they've got to go take him to Egypt and start a whole new life there. Talk about financial pressure. But God had a plan. He was working on their financial situation hundreds of years before they were born. He revealed it to Isaiah. And his words were studied by a Hebrew slave in Babylon. And God sent Gabriel to reveal Messiah to him. And he raises up the students of the scrolls and the stars and gives them wealth. Hundreds of years later, they make a journey to Bethlehem and they bring Mary and Joseph money. It's gold. I mean, people come to baby showers and bring gifts, but come on, what kind of planning is this? It's crazy. So let me just say this. Why are you worried about your bills, about your business? The same God who planned all of this is with you. Can't God use people on the other side of the world to bless you? Can he use wicked people to position you for a promotion? Who is like God? Who can outthink God? Who can stop God from blessing those who put him first? There is no one like our God. And now suddenly Mary and Joseph, they have Jesus. They don't have a hospital. They don't have any baby clothes. They have nothing. They have Jesus. And then because they have Jesus, they have gold. It's precious. It's pure. It's refined. It's a symbol of the divine. And they have frankincense. It's, it's a resin. It's produced from cutting into uh, the, the bark of buswellia trees. And it really smells great when it's burned. And so God commands Moses, I want you to use this in worship services to me as a sweet-smelling offering. And they bring it to Jesus, the one who would wholly offer himself as a sacrifice to God. And they bring myrrh. And that gift stands out to me. Because the gold and the frankincense, they were prophesied way back in Isaiah, right? Kings would come from other nations bringing gold and frankincense, you know, because the glory of God would reappear and the light has come. But there was only one reason that the Magi would bring myrrh. Myrrh was used in embalming the dead. Myrrh symbolizes bitterness and suffering and affliction. It would be like bringing a a, a casket to a baby shower. Has anyone ever done that? Yeah, most awkward baby shower present ever. 
You're going to have a baby. Look, here's a casket. Someday they'll need it. I mean, maybe this is why guys are never invited to baby showers. I don't know. They brought myrrh. It was a symbol of death and suffering. It was a confirmation of prophecies going all the way back to Genesis regarding a Savior who would suffer. And they brought myrrh because they believed Daniel. The anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. They knew the mission of the child. And can you see now how God moves kings and tyrants and slaves and prophets and angels and servants and political factions all to bring this moment together, a moment for the glory of God and the salvation of the world. Also, something very practical to take care of Jesus when he was here. You see, the ultimate chess grandmaster is a billion moves ahead taking care of you. What are you worried about? Psalm 33, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. Isaiah 46, I make known the end from the beginning. From ancient times, what will come? I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. Every word you have spoken will come to pass. Let it be done. God is not worried. And God is not surprised. And God is not reacting to circumstances. Anyone who has ever taken a martial art knows that a part of hand-to-hand combat is learning to use the inertia of your opponent against them, right? Instead of just trying to use blunt force to stop the attack, a smart fighter will roll with the attack and then use the inertia of the enemy against him. And you're in the middle of a problem and you're screaming, God, why are you letting this happen to me right now? No, you let him do his God-foo on the situation. That's right. Because he is working it out in ways that you don't even see right now. He's like, he's like Colonel Hannibal Smith. He's like, I love it when a plan comes together, right? You didn't see it in the middle. You just saw the fire and the explosion. No, he had a plan. Think about it. He knew from the beginning about Babylon and Herod and Caesar and all the bad guys. And he used every single one of them, every single wicked ruler and oppressor who thought they would defeat his plans and defeat his people, found they only became a vital part of his infinite, perfect plan. Who is powerful to stand in the way of God? No tyrant, no Caesar, no king, no devil can prevent or thwart the plan of God. God calculated every move before the beginning, and he turns everything to work in his favor. I mean, even the the death of Jesus. Satan thought he had a victory. He only wound up sealing his own doom and, and making the way for our eternal life to happen. God will not be stopped. Give him praise. This, this one little glimpse at God's kind of planning should give you rest. Because your mistakes and your past and your flaws cannot stop God. You are just not that powerful. And no one else is either that you're worried about. And we can rest in confidence knowing that if Satan himself tried to tear us apart and rip us down, he was not powerful enough to be victorious. Romans chapter 8. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Jesus, the perfect gift 
who came at the perfect time would grow to a man and he would look us in the eye and he would say, as is recorded in Matthew, be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. No, I get it. I know, I feel the stress. I know what you're thinking when he's saying that. Like, how could Jesus even say that? He knows how screwed up I am. I, uh, how could I possibly be perfect? Chasing perfection, it's exhausting. It's a moving target. It's oppressive. It's a slave driver. It, perfection is never satisfied. And how many of you know this? C.S. Lewis said it like this. No man knows how bad he is till he's tried very hard to be good. Right? And all the little kids trying to be good for Christmas said, right? All the people trying to watch their diet said, all the moms trying to make the Pinterest perfect Christmas said, oh, revival, yes. Look, it, it is not the perfection you are thinking of. This is not the perfection you're looking for, okay? Merriam-Webster defines perfection as being free from fault or defect. But the Greek word that is being used here is teleos. It means, it means perfect, but, but usually it's used in the context of being mature and being whole. And Jesus is saying, God is whole. He's perfect. He's complete. You can't add anything to him. Can't take anything away from him. He cannot be decreased. He cannot be increased. He cannot be made greater or more holy or more powerful. And God is calling us to join him in his wholeness, to be whole, to be complete in him. And the entire purpose, the mission of Messiah was to restore all that had been lost in the Garden of Eden, that oneness, that fellowship with Almighty God before there was any religion, before there was any churches or Bibles or anything like that, any law. No, Jesus came to restore that perfect fellowship with the Father. That is perfection. And you can't earn that. You can only receive it. You see, the people who were listening, they had the same ideas, you know, about perfection that, and religion that we get caught up in sometimes. They thought, well, you know, if I check the following boxes, God, God will be happy with me. If I avoid this list over here, and then if I do all these things over here, then I will earn God's blessing, and he'll be pleased with me. And Jesus destroys all that kind of thinking when he pointed right at the religious professionals, the people whose whole life was about checking those boxes. They didn't have any other thing to focus on. And Jesus points at them, and he says in Matthew 5, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The professional holy people, you have to have righteousness better than theirs. And that first Christmas, when baby Jesus was placed in the manger, the Bible tells us what he's wearing. Not because it's, you know, Bethlehem Fashion Week, but because it's important. The Bible says he's wearing swaddling clothes. He's wearing rags. Rags were all that Mary and Joseph had to offer him that night. And here's the truth. Rags are all that you and I have to offer him. Isaiah 64, we're all infected. We're impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they're nothing but filthy rags. And when Jesus came... He was dressed from birth in a symbol of our righteousness. He was wearing all of our efforts at being good 
And he clothed himself with the best that we could offer. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, the most spiritual that this world could produce are all we have to offer Jesus are the rags of our lives. But did that stop him from coming? No, he knew all of that. He knew your imperfections. He knew your weaknesses. He knew all of our sins. That's the point. That's the point of him coming. It's why to show us the purpose of perfection was to give it away to us. Isaiah 61, he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation. He's draped me in a robe of righteousness. He came to earth dressed in rags, but his invitation to us is to come and be clothed in his righteousness and to be perfect as he is perfect, not because of anything that we've done, but because of all that he is. And this is his invitation, not to exhaust all of our resources trying to be good, And to earn it, but to accept his righteousness and to wear it and to be whole and complete in him. Last Tuesday night, the Rangers did their Christmas party. They did it over at the Millennium Indoor Park. And if you have not taken your little kid to go play at Millennium, you got to take them there because they're going to love it. Right, They've got uh, games, video games, and, and go-karts, and rock climbing, and pizza, and bumper cars, all that stuff. And we started out the night with a game of laser tag. Right? And at age five, you know, Noah's a younger ranger, but I've had him in the backyard with a BB gun. He knows, you know, he knows how it all is supposed to go. He has the idea. So the boys file into the room, you know, they get their vests on and they, they get their little laser rifles and they split up into red team and blue team and, and then the game began. Noah was fine, right, as the game began until the lights went out, right? And then the loud music starts thump, 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 and he ran back to the entrance in tears. Daddy, I don't like it. I want to get out of here, please. And so, and so I got down on one knee and I was like, Noah, you're fine. It's a game. You love shooting games. Daddy, I don't like this game. I just get me out of here. I want to go. Noah, stop crying. Look at my face. Is daddy scared? No. <laughs> no one is hurt. Everyone's having a good time. You're going to go in there and you're going to hunt down blue team. <laughs> and you're going to be fine. Will you you go with me, Daddy? Yes, Daddy, will come with you. So together we go into the darkness of the laser tag maze, and and I'm pointing out blue team as they're, you know, running by, and and he shot at them, and they shot at him, and he was getting the hang of it, you know. And when the game ended, all the boys, you know, file out to go and see the scores, and guess what? Red team won, and there was high fives all around, and, and Noah was visibly, you know, excited by that victory, right? A feeling he would not have had if he had quit. And then as we were eating pizza later, I see Noah. He's bragging to Pastor Alex about how he went and played laser tag and the red team won. <laughs> Same kid, right, crying, Daddy, get me out. Now it's like, we played it, we won, woo, you know. <laughs> All smiles, right? And it's the same way with Jesus. He does great things for us. It's awesome. But then the lights go out and it gets a little crazy. Right? And then we get scared. And he gets down on his knee and he says, My child, do not be afraid. I will go with you. My grace is sufficient for you. And my power is made perfect in your weakness. (laughs) 
And every time we step out in faith, we discover it's true. Emmanuel is with us, and his love is taking away all of our fears. And he makes what was impossible possible. And we find ourselves experiencing victory. And the very thing that once paralyzed us, now we're celebrating it on the other side because it turned into a story of how great God is and how he did it with his power and with his help and how he gets all of the glory. And that's how, that's how our journey with Jesus ends. It ends in a celebration. It ends in a feast and a victory and rewards and the stories of all the victories that were won. There is no victory without a fight. There is no mansion without a manger. And there is no crown without a cross. And Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. I will give you rest. Take my yoke on me, on you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So today, exchange your attempt at perfection. Rest in his perfection. Perfection.